This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped. Streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. Yes, yes. Welcome into another edition of the Tim McKernan Show here on the Inside STL Podcast Network. I am your host, Tim McKernan, alongside executive producer John Seymour as we broadcast live on podcast from the HomeLoanExpert.com studios. I am really looking forward to you, the listener, getting a chance to hear Blue's managing partner, Chairman Tom Stillman. Uh, I know he's known as the owner Uh, But uh, over the course of the interview, he's clear to say he is not the owner, similar to Bill DeWitt Jr., for example, with the Cardinals. He's not the owner, but he is the chairman of the organization. And certainly, just like Bill DeWitt Jr., Tom Stillman has become the face of the franchise ever since closing on the Blues in May of 2012. And Tom Stillman and I had never met. Um, I'm I'm sure he has been on the radio show a couple of times, but we'd never met. And so uh, I also was under the impression, which I think is fair, I think Tom would probably say it himself, is that he is not necessarily, um, you know, real extroverted, so to speak, when it comes to interviews. He's certainly a kind man, clearly from a fan perspective, the exact kind of owner you would want because he's passionate. He's out there with the fans, welcoming them into the building. But as far as like a Mark Cuban uh, Jerry Jones style of uh, owner Steinbrenner back in the days. That's not that's not his style. So that's that's what I'm trying to say by that. So when we sit down to do the interview and uh, we had just met face to face for the first time anyway, uh, I'm, I said, you know, I, I like to go an hour and he goes, I got all the time you want. I'm like, all right. Well, cool. But I'm thinking to myself, we don't really know each other. I don't know if if you're going to want to go an hour. I don't know where this is going to go. Um, but I know that there's a story there and I want to try and get the story from the gentleman who, uh, is the chairman of the St. Louis blues. And so I think what you will hear over the course of this interview is Tom Stillman getting comfortable. And when Tom Stillman not only got comfortable, he got fired up and he really got fired up about the state of the city of St. Louis. Um, His passion was undeniable, and you will absolutely hear it. And my guess is, uh, even though I think Tom Stillman wouldn't consider himself the rah-rah, fire-up speech kind of guy, you will come out of this interview uh, more fired up about Tom Stillman and not just about his comments regarding the state of the city of St. Louis, but also about having him as the person who is leading this franchise. That that's that's my guess as to what your sentiment will be coming out of this. I don't like to say that because I feel like I'm I'm setting up prejudice, so to speak, for the interview. But 
I, I want you to be aware of it as you're listening because you're about to hear him, I think, in a way that you've never heard him before. Of course, talking about the Blues, the on-ice product, how passionate he is about the team, uh, and how passionate he is watching any game, not just playoff games, but also how passionate he is about St. Louis. Um, and but, but also his story, how this all came to pass. This is a guy who uh, was not growing up thinking he would ever own a franchise, nor was it something that was really on his radar, even when he was part of the ownership group in 2007. And then also the rapport between him and Dave Checkets and how that uh, struggled as the process began, where Tom Stillman led the group to buy the team from Checkets that eventually closed in 2012. So much there. Uh, so much there in this conversation. One of my favorites, because I think we heard Tom Stillman in a way that we've never really heard him before, and I love when that happens over the course of an interview. I always welcome your feedback. Email me at tmckernan at insidestl.com. Uh, questions, your comments, negative feedback is welcome. Ideally, it's stated in a rather uh, kind way that you would say if you were talking to somebody face-to-face as opposed to being uh, on social media. But but in general, I like to hear the feedback and see how we can improve the product. And if you have not subscribed to the Inside STL Podcast Network, you can subscribe to my show, the Tim McKernan Show, and Jimmy the Cat Hayes' show, the Cat Chat, and listen to all of these interviews that uh, we are able to get for you because of our great producer, John Seymour, and also the questions from the audience segment that we do every Thursday. We release every Thursday here on the Tim McKernan Show. Subscribe on iTunes, and then the shows are just downloaded right to your phone, and you can listen anytime you want. We want to make sure we thank our sponsors for making this possible, uh, especially Ryan Kelly and his team at thehomeloanexpert.com. Home values continue to rise. A strong purchase season means there are a lot of good comps out there for an appraiser to use. Maybe you took out a loan a year ago that required PMI. It's very possible that you now have the equity to get rid of that PMI, and lower your payment. Or maybe you can drop the PMI and cut your term to a 15 or 20 year, keeping your payment the same. A lot of people think they have a perfect mortgage, but with interest rates as low as they are, there are always options. Call today to explore your savings or visit online at thehomeloanexpert.com. If you are on board with this show, support the sponsors, especially our studio sponsor, where we do our interviews, the HomeLoanExpert.com studios. 1-800-991-6494. That's 1-800-991-6494. Five minutes can save you $500 with Ryan Kelly. 1-800-991-6494. It's the HomeLoanExpert.com. So, Tom Stillman, our guest today on the Tim McKernan Show. Without further ado, here he is, the chairman of the St. Louis Blues. So I called you Tom when you walked in, and I thought to myself, oh, that might have been disrespectful, because sometimes it seems sports team owners are called Mr. I don't like the whole Mr. thing. You don't like I'm the Mr. Mr. thing. <laughs> so that I, would have I, been... I, I uh, pretty often <laughs> tell people, no, no, it's not Mr., it's Tom. <laughs> Was it Mr. when you were only running your distributorship? No. No, I, I've... I've always resisted Mr. You're just Tom. Yes. I'm quite happy with being Tom. Yes, that's just... it, it speaks to this. I, I, I don't know if you would know him by name. You might know him by face. Kevin Lorenz, who used to be one of the producers on our show. Mm-hmm. He was in Minnesota playing pond hockey the weekend you officially became owner of the St. Louis Blues. And you were up there playing in the same pond hockey tournament. Mm-hmm. And he's like, oh, my God 
God, there's the new owner of the Blues, <laughs> and he's sitting on the bench next to me at a pond in Minnesota talking about our pond hockey tournament like he's just any other guy. That's what people say about Tom Stillman. Well, thank you. That is that is such a fun event. It was really fun to to run into him up up there. It is uh, it's it's just kind of a celebration of hockey at its roots. You go to this lake, uh, kind of on the out, edge of Minneapolis, uh-huh. and there are I believe it's twenty five rinks carved into the lake. Wow. And then this huge, you know, tent on the shore that is just full of, you know, players shuttling in and shuttling out for their games and changing and, you know, stuff all over the place and some beer taps. And it's it's, it's a great event. I picture, I picture, Kevin, I think now is probably around like 28 or so. I just picture like 20-year-old, give or take, maybe 30 or but. Everybody's up there, and everybody's just playing for the love of the game. Yeah, yeah. To, to be clear, we were playing then in the uh, fifty and over. Right. Well, <laughs> and not, yeah. Now we're getting a little too old for we're a little too old for that. That that, that, that team has kind of gone by the wayside. <laughs> but yeah, it's everything from uh, young guys to you know there were some pros that would enter into the open division, and then you got old guys like us, and you had beginners. You had a women's division. There was a picture of the whole layout in Sports Illustrated several years ago that kind of captured the you know the festival yeah. nature of it. It's it, it's 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 a it's quite an event. And people might not know this but you did play you first played hockey at Middlebury, correct? Yes. And you also played did you not play did I, I played Bay? soccer also, Play. but I was really a pretty bad soccer player. <laughs> so we won't talk about the soccer. Good, good, it was a very good team, but I was uh, I was a supplemental player. <laughs> but hockey has been a part of your life and playing it going all the way back to to what? Yeah, I mean, I grew up in Minnesota, so um, it was just sort of a, a, a way of life there. I mean, uh, the suburb that I grew up in had an outdoor hockey rink probably every mile. And, you know, so we would just spend endless hours uh, on, on the rinks yeah. playing, playing pickup hockey. Um, I remember, you know, when we got old enough to drive, I remember we would we'd go to one rink, you know, with a few friends, and there'd be, you know, a good pickup game going. So you'd go and put your skates on and skate. You know, after a couple hours, it would peter out and say, okay, get in the car, skates on, drive, <laughs> skates on, pushing the accelerator, go to the next rink, sit. Well, looks like they've got something going here. We'll stay here and just go and on. They just got start and playing again. Yeah. Oh, it, that's it, the best. It was fun. My gosh. And so you had to be pretty good if you're playing in college. The soccer career might not have been on the right track, but hockey was pretty good, I guess. Uh, you know, I, I, I wasn't uh, I was nothing to write home about. I wasn't threatening <laughs> any jobs in the pro ranks, but it was fun. It, you know, something I, I really liked a lot. So we were, we were doing research for the interview and uh, our producer here, John Seymour, goes, oh, I didn't realize that uh, Tom spent time in Washington D.C. Mm-hmm. and you were in the Department of Commerce, eighty-eight to ninety-two, ninety-three. Is that correct? yeah, something like that. I was, uh, you know, after law school in Minnesota, I went to uh, joined a law firm in New York and was there for a number of years, and then moved to that same firm's Washington office okay. for a couple of years, two three years, and from there went into the government in the uh, Elder Bush administration, and uh, was there for. I, I, four years, right? You know, summarily fired when uh, Bill Clinton came in, right. and all the other political appointees, <laughs> um, and uh, was an interesting, if not terribly uh, enjoyable, experience. So you did enjoy it? I, no, it, no it I, not, I, okay. yeah, I mean, it was. 
You know, the, the federal government, uh, we spent so much time in turf wars <laughs> rather than getting things done. Yeah. And I was working in an area that involved um, national security controls on exports and um, you know what, what could be sent abroad, not strictly military equipment, but what was called dual-use things. So anything from computers to chemicals. And it's an area in which, you know, there were six or seven agencies that had an interest, everything from commerce to state to defense to CIA to the White House. And and so it was so much time that was just spent fighting for turf rather than, you know, really moving the ball forward. So that, that's not exactly how I like to work. But it was, you know, it's a good experience. Sure. It's a good, good look at, uh, you know, how, how the government works. You therefore moved out of the public sector, I gather, after 92? Is that... Yeah. Um, after that, we... In early 93 is when we moved to St. Louis. Okay. All right. And um, I decided at that point, I, you know, not at that point, it was coming for some time. I, I didn't really want to work as a lawyer, practice law anymore. So I started looking for some different things to do. Jack Danforth has been a guest on this show. Uh-huh. Um, I think the world of of the man. He's been on our show and also on this podcast. So do, uh, I. So do I. You think the world of him as well? I yeah. sure do. He's just... Um, you know, I think there are probably a lot of uh, public figures whose, um, you know, the public image is much greater than the actual, and this is, it's actually the other way around. Yeah, isn't that the truth? Personally, it's even, even better than the, than the public image. When we, uh, you know, I met him, we had lunch a couple times, and then, you know, he's done some interviews, and... He's just such a good man. To me, he represents, it's kind of like, I don't really care what political party you're in, he's in, whoever. You just can tell he's somebody who's out for what is the greater good. And you just wish that was like more prevalent right now. Uh, It's just, it's disappeared. And um, it's just what we need so, so bad. Mm -hmm. People who are not, you know, pandering to this constituency or that or treating compromise like a dirty word, just just trying to get things done and finding some medium, you know, intermediate position that where everybody can be, you know, satisfied, if not completely happy, just get some things done. What did you see in Washington from 88 to 92? Did you feel like that was going on? Of course, Senator Danforth was Senator Danforth at that time. Well, you know, it it was different and 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 better than I know. I know his experience was, you know, very different from what it, what it is today. I mean, he was very close to a number of Democrats, worked very closely with them on the Commerce Committee and other play, other venues, um, and you know, you just you just you just don't see that today. Yeah, I mean, even though there were partisan battles, and of course, you know, there were certainly differences and you know the hearings were had a a political you know angle to them but there was much more inclination to work together and in part i mean i think he would say that they that the members of the senate and i assume the house too had more personal relationships Mm -hmm. they got together across party lines in the evenings and knew each other's families and all so why do you think it's changed I don't know. I, you know, I think a lot of it is the the 24-hour news cycle, the social media. Everything is fly-specked uh, within an inch of its life. Um, 
I think also in in both parties it it's it's the it's the extreme you know ends of the party that control the primary process mm-hmm. and you know that makes for uh, you know more extreme uh, candidates makes it very difficult for uh, a candidate to get nominated, much less elected, when he takes a more centrist, mm-hmm. more reasonable position. Yeah, that's what I was when we were talking with uh, Jack Danforth. I said, I wonder for a successful and perhaps like one of the greatest politicians to come from the state of Missouri, if he could get elected in 2018, because he certainly doesn't speak uh, fiery words and he i don't know if he would ever uh want to tweet (laughs) you know Mm -hmm. and and he couldn't possibly convey himself in 140 characters or as the case is now more characters but um yeah i think he you know once in the general election probably could get elected right just be hard to get there the Mm -hmm. way the apparatus is set up in the republican party and i think it's fairly similar in the Democratic Party. He, you know, most people don't get involved in the primaries, and the people who do are at the edges. Yeah. He spoke very highly of George H.W. Bush. In your time in Washington, did you have interactions with the president? No, I didn't, but I sure I, I sure love the thought of a gentleman like that in the, in the White House right now. Yeah. So you're out of the public sector. You moved to the private sector. You're back in St. Louis now, or you're moving to St. Louis first time. Yes. Um, what what takes place in 1993 as you start moving from being an attorney and moving out of D.C. and then now you're in St. Louis? Well, we had a lot of change all at once. Uh, my wife, Mary, and I, I mean, we had gotten married about uh, three, four years earlier. We had uh, one child at the time who was uh, one and a half. <clears throat> and one reason we, we wanted to move was he was he didn't like grass. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, we had a brick backyard and, you're, you know, so th- this isn't right. Um, but we, we moved here and uh, we had our second child, Isabel, you know, later in that year, 93. So we both, Mary changed jobs. I went from a job to no job and we moved to a new city and... Um, so I started looking for an opportunity, like a company to buy or invest in or something like that. And I would, uh, we had this room above the garage that was just, it was just a disgusting room with old shag carpeting and a, you know, window air conditioner that didn't work. And I called it Worldwide Headquarters. <laughs> As I sat there and went, what am I doing? <laughs> and so I was looking around and just talking to a lot of people and ultimately got involved in a beer distribution business. Okay. And uh, clearly it went pretty well. So you go from not being in St. Louis to in Summit. Uh, yeah, at that time it was called St. Louis Beer Sales and it was um, located down on Union Boulevard. And it was, uh, you know, it was sort of the Coors and Pabst and Heilman and Stroh and just the beginnings of a couple crafts and some imports. But it, we bought it from three older guys who were kind of worn out, yeah. you know, time to. So it's been a lot of uh, <laughs> a lot of changes and things that have had to be done there. How was it going from being an attorney, working in D.C., Department of Commerce, to then leading a beer distributorship. That's a, uh, that's a legitimate transition. Yeah, it's, it, it was a, a big change. And, um, 
lots of mistakes made along the way. What would know? be something that you look back and go, oh my gosh, we all have them. <laughs> oh, I, I, I don't know. I, you know. I think when you do something like that and you're new at it, you, you, know, you think all the numbers on the page look great, but you know, it really comes down to the people who are in the positions and you know, that you can trust and, and get things done. I originally had a partner that I thought I could trust and rely on to, for industry knowledge and it, that on both cases, trust and industry knowledge didn't, <laughs> didn't turn out to be the case. Uh, so suddenly here I am. Uh, but, you know, it, it's it's a trial and error thing and you just have to keep going. Well, it works out. You become part of the Blues Ownership Group in 2007. Mm-hmm. And then it becomes clear that the team is for sale and it becomes quite a process. Locally, people are monitoring it quite closely, but you, you do close on the blues in 2012. If you could, I've never really heard the, the story of how it went from Tom Stillman, minority shareholder to Tom Stillman, now leading the charge to, to buy the team from Dave Checkets and his group. Um, well, I'd, I'd, I'd say it was a kind of a long shot against all odds. I mean, when I when I got involved with the previous group, I, I had no designs on... I mean, I wasn't planning to do that. And uh, somebody who... A lawyer who was working with them um, was asking around because they wanted to add a, a local partner. They had kind of made that commitment at closing in 2006. Mm-hmm. And we were introduced, and I ultimately ended up coming in and, and joining the group. Um, but you know, I didn't have designs on something further. Um, it was only when, um, in 2010, I guess is when Towerbrook announced that it wanted to sell its interest. And, um, that, you know, that, that kind of is what set off the, the chain of events from there. I mean, the initial response to that by, uh, my former partner, uh, Dave Checkets, was that, you know, everything will be fine. Everything will stay the same. We'll, we'll get investors to take Tower Brooks' place and we'll just go on as, as we are, which would have been, which would have been fine with me. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, around the industry, the interpretation, the, you know, the predictions were quite different. Tower Brook had... 74, 75% interest. Um, so, the, you know, the feeling was it would be pretty difficult to get somebody to come in for that amount or big chunks of that without having control. And and there were a lot of people predicting that the ultimate outcome would be that the whole team would be put up for sale. Um, so, you know, understanding that, I decided, you know, I will start putting a group together just in case the team, the franchise, the business get does get put up for sale as a whole. Uh, and um, But if it doesn't, if, if the other, you know, route works, we find other investors and we go on as mm-hmm. we are, that'd be great. Um, my former partner didn't really like that approach very much. He <laughs> thought that I, I was somehow... Um, in conflict with him there, which I, I, I never, I never really saw. You know, I, I didn't agree with that. Mm-hmm. But um, so from there, you know, I was putting a group together, and honestly, he was probably doing everything possible to stop us from being successful. Even though I was <laughs> the one person, you know, you know, candidate to 
to buy it who had actually invested in him. And, and But anyway, so that is what prolonged the process. Anyway, after one year, 2010 to 2011, about a year into this, you know, they did announce that we're going to put the entire franchise up for sale because they were not able to, you know, reach a deal with Tower Brook. Mm-hmm. And, but it, it still took, you know, another, another year of process. And it sounds like it, what was that process like for you personally? You know, you're, you're working on it. Now your, your partner is, I don't know how you would characterize it. It's awkward. I guess awkward would be a euphemism. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we just didn't have a lot of contact during that time, but it, it was, you know, it was sort of a hurry up and, and wait sort of situation. There'd be, uh, times of frenzied activity and work on it and then we'd be waiting i mean i remember going on a trip with some you know friends some other couples i don't know probably sometime in you know around 2011 you know probably a year before we ultimately closed and thinking Oh, I may have to get back because this, you know, oh, wow. you know, it was one of those things yeah. where it's going to break. It's not going to break. Yeah. So, but uh, I, I'd also say during that whole time, until the, you know, pretty close to the end, I, I didn't think it was really that likely we were going to be successful. Really? Just figured it was kind of a long shot, and we knew we weren't going to overpay. Yeah. We just we kind of stuck really pretty close to our number, uh, and. Um, just we weren't going to put ourselves or the franchise in a situation where it had too much debt. Mm-hmm. So you've kind of uh, feel that, you know, sealed its fate right from the beginning by um, uh, with too much leverage. So um, all those things combined to uh, make for a fairly long process. When you do find out that you are going to have the St. Louis Blues as the majority, uh, what is that like for somebody who grew up going from rink to rink in Minnesota to now owning an NHL franchise? Well, it's not something I ever thought of doing or wanted to do, but I, I do know when I got the call from Gary Bettman saying, okay, now the uh, the purchase agreement is yours. Go out and get it done. I, after hanging up, I, th- I think I did let out sort of a primal scream. <laughs> <laughs> I was out at the place where I duck hunt and I, I think the others around wondering what happened. <laughs> but there was actually then, there was still quite a bit of, of, of work to do from there. It took still another several months to, you know, do everything. Sure. Well, you're a hockey player, of course, we discussed by nature, playing in D3 college. And you're also a passionate but relatively hands-off owner when it comes to player decisions. Does the hockey background keep you grounded over an 82-game season or over a two- or three-year build, or does it make it a little more difficult to calmly look at the big picture? I, I think it... I actually think it helps. Um, just, uh, again, I've, I don't hold myself out as any kind of expert, you know, when you, especially when you look at the people uh, and the experience that we have in our, you know, hockey side, from Doug to Al to Marty to coaches and all. But That's quite a staff. Yes. Um, but being... Familiar. I should always mention Dave Taylor. Also, he doesn't get you know mentioned as much, and he is a you know a great hockey mind as well, and very much involved. But you know, having some familiarity with the game and 
the dynamic of a game and how there are ups and downs and <laughs> something I can grasp maybe more than most. It's hard <laughs> to do what, you know, people are expecting, you know, everybody to do. So I, I think having that perspective maybe keeps you a, a little grounded, you know, not too high, not too low. Mm-hmm. When, when, you know, you lose some games, uh, okay, you know, mm-hmm. the, these go that way. Not that we're happy or satisfied. And, you know, when you win some big, you realize, okay, that that's great. Now there's the next one coming. And so I, I, I think it helps maybe keep an even keel. Yeah. What was it like for you during some of these playoff runs? I mean, we got a taste around here in 2016 with a run to the Western Conference Finals, first time in, in 15 years. What are those... I mean, for me as a fan and a guy who hosts a talk show, it's like, oh, I can't wait for tonight. I can't wait for the next game. What's that like as the guy who who owns the team to see the team get to that point and be on the threshold? It's, uh, I mean, it, uh, it hits you, gets you just, it, if you let it, you can get too, too, just too much of a fever pitch. So you have to kind of just get away or let it melt away. It, it happens that um, my other obsession kind of takes place at the same time as as hockey, as uh, hockey playoffs. I, I love turkey hunting and a little over the top about it. And um, so often during the playoffs, between games, I'm somewhere turkey hunting. And there... And and I'm sure Doug and the hockey guys and everybody's really happy about that because <laughs> I'm not you know around just going nuts and say so that 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 kind of it, it does get your mind off the the game that night the series quite a, a a little bit so you're not you know just cranking yourself up a little a, a little too much stay a little more even keeled. I'm embarrassed that there have been times with sports losses for teams I cheer for as a lifelong St. Louis and that that they can keep me up at night, you know, and I'll wake up and I'll be a miserable yeah. the next morning. I would imagine, because we see you in, in your sweet cheering, which fans love, that there have to have been games that you, that keep you up. Well, it's, it's not only the playoffs, but even the regular season. I, I think everybody in the organization feels this to some degree, you know, you, through the regular season, you, you win, um, you know, you, you're just in a better mood for a couple of days. Yeah. And there's a loss, and it's Hanks. I'm not saying you're just, you're just down in the dumps. Right. In the, the, would be in the playoffs. But it just, it affects your mood. You're living mm-hmm. with it day by day, and, you know, this is, this is what we're aiming at. This is what we're all about. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, it, 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 it does affect your, your, your mood. But I think fans like that. I think fans want an owner who is emotionally invested like they are. They can relate. Makes you relatable. You're Tom. You're not Mr. Stillman. I'm the guy sitting there screaming in overtime as well. And I don't, I don't see how you you wouldn't be that way. I don't, I don't think I should get any credit for that. How could you not be going to, you know, affected by winning and losing and want to win and, you know, and, and want to watch and want to see the details of the game. Yeah. It's just it's it's fun and you know a big part of sports is the emotion the emotional investment and commitment that that fans make and that a region makes and the way it you know they rise and fall together and it brings that group 
you know, the community together behind a, you know, behind something. So it's, you know, it, it's all part of the what we're trying to do, even though sometimes it, you know, can get you down a little bit. Other times it can get you up a lot. So I'll take a guess on your favorite win as owner of the Blues would be the Game 7 win over the Blackhawks. That would, am I accurate, that, Troy Brower? That, that would be, that, that would be the one. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, that just, and not only, I mean, it was kind of a euphoria, the happiness part, also there was such an element of relief there because, you know, we needed to break through the first round. We needed to, to get that monkey off our backs, and it, it, it really did feel like a, a huge weight had, you know, been, you know, removed from our shoulders. I'm sure initially when people heard you answer that question that we need, we needed to. You're talking about the emotional element of the hockey team getting out of the first round. Sometimes I feel like during the postseason, people arbitrarily, what do we know, assign dollars to, well, if the Blues can get to the second round, that's really good for the franchise. They need to get to the second round for the benefit of the franchise and the ownership group. And, oh, if they can get to the Western Conference Finals, even better. Of course, I would imagine it is. Sure, but but that's not... yeah, there is that, but at the time, that's not what you're thinking. You're, you're, you know, not sitting there watching a game with a calculator. You know, you're, you're it's a more of an emotional thing, and and kind of we want to win, and we want to accomplish these things, and our fans want the same thing, and we want to give that to them. And you know, we had, we had stumbled in the first round for you know couple of years two three years mm-hmm. and we just you know for all those reasons to get that behind the team so they can get that burst of confidence and move forward so that our fans can have that satisfaction so that you know we just shed that whole issue and go forward you have to allow yourself i would imagine maybe you haven't because it's like sometimes you're around guys who play the game and you know they don't touch the cup while they're playing, unless they've won the cup. I mean, that's, and you can't even like talk about it around them. And I love that. It's mm-hmm. one of the nuances of hockey. But you've owned the team, you're passionate about the team. And it, as much as the Cardinals are associated nationally with this market as being a baseball town, I think if you pulled St. Louisans, what they would rather see if they were given the choice another Cardinal World Championship or a Blue Stanley Cup, I truly believe a Blue Stanley Cup would win. That's how hungry the market is for a Stanley Cup. I think Cup. there was a poll a few years ago that came out that way. Well, there you go. That's I think. I was sure. right. <laughs> yeah. But you, therefore, have had to have, you've had to have visualized that. Um, really, I visualized it, and then I just stop. You know, I, uh, I don't. I don't want to go there too far. I, I just, obviously, that's what we are working toward. That's what everybody has his or her sights on. Uh, but I don't let myself, you know, daydream too far down that road. We, you know, it's we got to keep focused on the task at hand and not, not get carried away in those things. That you know, let's get it done first. Hope you're enjoying this interview with Blues owner Tom Stillman on the Inside STL Podcast Network and the Tim McKernan Show. And if you like the Tim McKernan Show, if you like the Cat Chat, please make sure that when the time comes and you have an opportunity to support the people you hear advertising on it, that you do. And one of those people is James Carlton of the James Carlton State Farm Insurance Agency. If you're in front of a computer right now while you're listening to this, go to carltoninsurance.net. It will take you two seconds to type that in. Go to it right now, carltoninsurance.net. And just get a quote to see what the good word 
is ask yourself a question. What's my insurance company doing for me? Then go check them out on Google and Facebook and see what they're doing for others in your community. There's a reason why James Carlton's agency has the kind of reviews on Google and Facebook that they do. I went into his agency, met the staff, and was thinking to myself, man, he has a lot of people working for him. But the reason for that is so they can provide top-of-the-line customer service. And that's why they get the reviews that they do. It's James Carlton, James Carlton State Farm Agency, carltoninsurance.net, or 314-961-4800. That's 314-961-4800. Make sure you let them know that you heard about them on the Tim McKernan Show on the Inside STL Podcast Network. If your insurance costs a leg and an arm, call James Carlton, State Farm. You say that getting fired up in a suite during a game is like, well, I mean, of course, what else are you going to do as the owner of a team, just like a fan? That's one thing. But then we also see video of you, pictures of you welcoming fans to the Scott Trade Center, shaking hands. That is rare. That doesn't come with the responsibility. I mean, I guess you could make the case that it does, but you do that. And that's something that I think also resonates with the fan base when they see the owner of the franchise out there welcoming people to the building. What is the thought process that got you to do that? Not that you're doing that every single game, of course, but that people see you out there. You know, I think it's just common courtesy and respect to show um, that you're grateful for the fans' support and start off the season by by making that clear and welcoming people. Um, it, it, there's not a... There's not a, a long strategic paper behind it or anything like that. It's just, you know, w- we realize that it's because fans and companies and, you know, people around the area are supporting that. That's why we can have a team. That's why we can field a competitive team. And um, we need to, you know, show some love in return. And we're, that, that's just what we're trying to do. It's just kind of being... You don't have to be all fancy about it. I, I don't think, you know, a sports owner has to, you know, I, I you know, I, I think it can be a little more down home than, than, than it is in a lot of cases. And we're about to go into that department because I asked uh, Bill DeWitt third, uh, interviewed him a few weeks ago, and I said, what do you think of the way the Rams exited St. Louis? And he said, I've, I go to a lot of rubber chicken dinners around here. Now, granted, a lot of them are baseball-oriented, but I never met Stan Kroenke. Still have not met Stan Kroenke. And I saw Tom Stillman this morning. He assisted on my goal, as a matter of fact. <laughs> 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 had you ever met Stan Kroenke? No. No. Never did. What were you thinking as you were observing that as an owner of a team here in St. Louis? You know, I, I don't I don't really want to get into criticizing a franchise or a person or anything like that. We're more focused on what we were doing. And, um, you know, we think it's important to be a part of the community, um, not see it as um, just a source of, you know, dollar signs or have a calculator in your hand. Um and, um, I mean, I, I think, again, that gets back to the important part of sports, you know, beyond what happens on the ice or on the field. It's about the community and bringing it together and how the community comes together behind you. And, um, you know, it's important. And I, and I think Chris Zimmerman, our, our, our um, 
CEO, president and CEO on the business side has brought a new emphasis to this, of, of making sure that you show that appreciation and you have that connection and engagement with, with the fans. And um, it, it's hard to have that if you don't treat fans and other supporters properly. Two nights after the announcement, the Rams are moving to Los Angeles. Uh, the Blues are hosting the Carolina Hurricanes. And you and Bill DeWitt III appear at Center Ice for a ceremonial puck drop. How did that, which meant so much to St. Louisans, how did that come to fruition, Tom? Um, uh, you know, it was, it, it came out of discussions with Chris Zimmerman and Billy and, you know, others in both organizations. And um, I'm not exactly sure where the idea uh, actually came from. I kind of think it came from Chris, but he refuses to take credit <laughs> for it. Um, but uh, it, it, it just, we were thinking, what, what, what do we do? How can we make some statement of our commitment for St. Louis and kind of improve the, you know, the community's feeling about itself in a, in a tough time? And that's what we came, that's what, that's what we arrived at. Yeah, when you're out there doing that were you cognizant of how much that that meant to be because that really that's still kind of a signature moment around here yeah i think more so i mean we thought oh this would be this is a good you know I like this idea this is a good thing to do but it didn't uh, i think maybe we didn't realize um the kind of the how compelling it it would be mm-hmm. um i think both bill and i out there um you know, you could just, you could feel the emotion um, yeah, there, there, from there that a, crowd. Yeah, there was a chant afterwards, yeah, if I'm not yeah, mistaken. Yeah, there was a chant, too. But. <laughs> <laughs> How would you describe your relationship? I mean, clearly, if you and Bill are out there playing hockey, you know, a couple times a week together, and, he, and you're kind enough to pass it to him so he can he can score. <laughs> no, he no, he's kind enough to put my pass in the net. I was just saying it that way. That's the way it does. That's the way we're, but... It's it's a weird deal because clearly the Blues and Cardinals have a great relationship. I mean, I don't even know how you could the Winter Classic being the signature, the pinnacle of that. Um, but yet you're also somewhat, I guess, competing for you know dollars, but yet have this really healthy relationship. At least it seems that way. I'm thirty. Yeah, you know, and and we really do. And and um, I, I I give the Cardinals a tremendous amount of credit for that because obviously they're the the big dog in this town and have been for a long time. And and they could have said. Why do we want to do that? Why do we want to rub shoulder? And and they haven't done that. They've they've made the decision, in my view, that this is better for St. Louis. If we're working together, it brings the community together. Mm-hmm. So let's do that. Mm-hmm. And um, I give Bill and his whole ownership group a tremendous amount of credit for that. And 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 then you know once once it started, we just discovered a lot of things, good things we could do together, both. You know that help the community, that help both franchises, and uh, you know are fun. And mm-hmm. so it, it it it's been good. Not you know it helps probably that Bill is, is a hockey fan mm-hmm. and and you know skates regularly with us and and all that. But uh, and you know he's a very good guy. Yeah. He really is a good great guy. golfer, hockey mm-hmm. player. Mm-hmm president of a franchise mm-hmm. like a renaissance man <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> maybe he paints also i don't know I, I was i was you know when i asked bill about this as well because of all the the work they're doing down there with ballpark villages phase two which of yeah, course he's tremendous you love that you yeah. love seeing that yeah i do yeah but the the, the national uh 
criticism of St. Louis, and I also think some of it is some form of self-criticism. Maybe we're too hard on ourselves regarding St. Louis. It's great to see construction in downtown St. Louis. You own a franchise, one of the two major sports franchises in St. Louis. How would you... I own with a group. Let's make sure we have a group. Let's make sure we make that clear. (laughs) Uh, What is your opinion of, at this moment, 2018, the state of St. Louis? Um... You know, I think we're we could we could go either way, and I I guess I, I feel very strongly that it's time we do a better job of getting our act together and get on the same page. Um, and and I don't mean just the city and the county coming together, but I I mean um, political leaders uh, acting for the greater good of the area rather than just for their you know, constituencies and just uh, saying no. You know, we, we've just been, as you know, through the experience of a couple of totally unnecessary litigations um, that, um, to me, point to just dysfunction in, in the government. Um, and um, there, there's, there's no reason that that kind of thing should happen, you know. We follow the uh, legislative and executive branch process perfectly, get everything done properly, and one person decides she won't sign the document when the law absolutely, positively, clearly says she has no discretion, she has to sign it. And, you know, if, and, and, and that's what's happening to an entity and individuals' involvement that I, that I think are seen as good citizens. So if you're a company, on the outside of St. Louis, say Amazon or somebody that's looking to come here and you say, well, that's how they treat, you know, local companies of good repute that, you know, they eat their young in that market. So why is that someplace we want to deal with? And then we have a, you know, a member of the board of aldermen who she's outvoted. So she sues when there are two cases directly on point that are make absolutely 100% clear that she's wrong. There is no constitutional claim. It's been, that case has been decided twice. But for personal political reasons, we're going we're, we're gonna to file a lawsuit. That, that, that doesn't move the, 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 the area forward. That doesn't move the city forward. It doesn't move the region forward. All it does is make us look, you know, silly, uh, make it clear it's very difficult to do business here, and it gets in the way of, of, you know, accomplishing things. And, and, you know, you wonder why, you know, you go down to Nashville and there are cranes everywhere. The same in Indianapolis and Kansas, you know. <laughs> you know, why is that? So I, I, I think, um, I guess, being in this position gives you a, a pretty good look at some of these issues. And... I, I do think we need to take a very hard look at how we can come together, unify, get more efficiency in our government. Um, you know, I feel I feel strongly that we should unify the city and the state. We are wasting money. We the city and the county. The city and the county, rather. And uh, but that's probably uh, mostly for another time. But um, we, we we need to move forward because we are going to get left behind. And, and we, you know, we're in the process of that now. If you visit some other 
you know, other cities with which we're trying to compete. I'm a lifelong St. Louis, and I was born and raised in the city of St. Louis. Uh, I did live downtown for a few years, and I'm passionate about the city of St. Louis. Uh, not just the city limits, but the region. And it, it really frustrates me, not someone who is part of an ownership group of a major league franchise, but somebody who has a business here, to feel like we're falling behind when, when I was growing up. It's like, let's pursue the top 10 markets, so to speak, as opposed to some of the markets you just did. It's nothing against mm-hmm. Indianapolis or Nashville. But we, when I was in the 80s and 90s yes. growing up, we th- saw ourselves as higher than them. And now it's like, well, now we got to follow the lead of Indianapolis, Nashville, and Kansas City. Right. I don't know what happened. What do you think happened? Yeah, and, and are we going to wake up 10 years from now and say, you know, we're, 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 we're looking at Des Moines? I mean, come on. We, we, need, to, we need to come together and, and streamline our government and, the, you know, the ability to make decisions, the, the, the ability to fund investments, rather than just spending our time fighting with each other, you know? Um, you know, some of the data that the organization Better Together has pulled together of the amount of money that is wasted on duplicative services, police, fire, um, everything else throughout the county. It's just, it's just ridiculous. And, and you know, you, you tell me whether, you know, all those tiny police departments can provide the kind of training, you know, an opportunity for advancement and all that, you know, a large police department can. Yeah. Or the equipment. Or you know the quality of the the hires. It's just you know we, we we need to we need to wake up and 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 pull together before we you know fall down another rung. I love that answer. I'm sure a lot of people love to hear the passion on the, on that front as well. It was one of I had I was ready to ask you about the the Kara Spencer um, issue. I guess I don't even know if it was, uh, and then also. Spencer non-issue. <laughs> Spencer non-issue, as, as you call it, and then also the comptroller not signing off on that which was approved. I mean, I, I can't imagine you're sitting here and you're operating a franchise and you're watching the city fight two different times against you. I mean, to have to sue an elected city official. I mean. Really, and for that city official to take an action that she and her advisors have to know, the law doesn't provide for that. The city charter is very clear of what steps she can take to protect the, the city's credit rating. And what she can do is spend money, for example, to pay down bonds or something like that, if that money is appropriated by the Board of Aldermen, mm-hmm. period. That, that is the extent of the authority that that position has to protect the, the city's credit rating. It, it isn't, I mean, to, to take the, the view that the comptroller had, the comptroller it really put herself above the mayor and the Board of Aldermen because, you know, the Board of Aldermen passed them as well as the Board of Estimate and Apportionment and the SID Board and all those, you know. And then the mayor signs, and the mayor has a veto. mayor doesn't have to sign, get veto, and then it can be overridden. But the comptroller under that, you know, her view became a super mayor. All these approvals happened. Everything was done. And yet, no, I have another veto. There's yet another veto here. Uh, it's, it's, 
you know, it's not in the law. It's not stated anywhere. It's just I want to. And, 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 and the price of that is, well, one, we spent a lot of money on litigation and we had to take on debt to do it. But it, it's, it's broader than that. It's not just us. It's what, what, what does that say to companies and people that want to invest in the city? We want to do something to make our downtown more vibrant, that want to bring, you know, jobs or uh, attractions, things like that here. What, what does that say to them? Well, it's not encouraging, that's for sure. Why do you think that's the case? Why do you think that went on? I, I, I think in both cases, it's just it's just playing to their constituents. Yeah, yeah. You know, every, you know, politicians get in office, and the prime, in, in some cases, seems like the only value is staying there. And it, it doesn't matter what's what's right, what's a courageous decision, what's What's best for the area as a whole? It's how do I get elected again? Well, for those who have been to the Scott Trade Center this year, uh, in regard to what we were just discussing with the renovation, you have to be pretty pleased with what you've seen so far with the building. People are raving about, you know, the new Jumbotron and what they're seeing in there. What do you think of, of what you see for the it's 17, a, a, it, it, It's it's a very dramatic difference. I mean, it's really just the, the first phase, but um, it, it is a dramatic difference. And, it, it, you know, it goes beyond what you're seeing in that, you know, that scoreboard, which, you know, brings us into, you know, today's world and makes us competitive with, you know, other arenas and, and you know, the sound system and other things. But it, it was also a lot of, you know, behind the scenes pipes and floors yeah. and, 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 and all that kind of thing. We also, you know, the NCAA and and the conferences, the SEC, MVC, and others wanted to make sure we had to have four locker rooms so they can have two basketball teams in one and then two in the next. You know, we got we got that done. They needed a you know better media facility. All, all those sort of things behind the behind mm-hmm. the scenes were done. Um, so it, it's a big step up. We have quite a bit to go still. I I mean, our goal is to come out with a state-of-the-art, truly competitive uh, arena at the end of everything, but it was a a very good start. It was quite a summer for uh, Alex Rodrigo, our our building GM, and the contractor Parrick, and everybody involved. Um, I can't remember the the number, what was it, 170,000 man-hours or something in 10 weeks, or, you know, it was... I mean, they tore apart the, the concrete floor of the rink and, you know, started and went, went from there. So it's quite a process. Some people were wondering, in addition to what you've already done now at the Scott Trade Center and what will be done to the Scott Trade Center, where things stand with the Maryland Heights practice facility. Mm-hmm. What can you say? Um, that is, is moving along. As you know, it's no longer in Creevecore Park. Some other, you know... Um, Let's say no uh, <laughs> opponents, but uh, yeah, actually, I think this is going to work out to be even better. Um, and uh, Maryland Heights, as a municipality, is um, it's it's really different. They they get it. They know how to get things done. They also have resources because of some of the other developments they have there. And you know, I think it's going to turn out to be better for. You know, all concerned. You know, I, I guess I, I would just 
add there. One of the things that I guess bothers me from time to time, this thing gets described as our practice facility, and that's what it is. We will use about 3% of the ice time. Mm. And, yes, we need a new practice facility, and we're going to pay for that. We're going to pay to fit it up. We're going to lease, you know, when we, but what, what we're after here is the continued development of youth hockey in the area. We lost a three-rink facility in, in Chesterfield, as you know, last mm-hmm. year. Um, and, you know, it's been torn down. It's, uh, Top Golf is right. building a facility there. That was the most active ice facility in the area, including for all the, you know, kind of the elite teams, the AAA programs with lots of alumni coaching and everything. It's gone. This facility would be four rinks, four rinks in the winter because one's outside. Um, and so we're only keeping up. We had, you know, <laughs> we really need more than that. But um, there, and so that is a major part of our motivation, and um, I'll say that a number of people in our ownership group have made substantial gifts, and they are gifts, mm. pledges, to, to support it because we believe in the game. We want to see more people play it. And, you know, from our franchise's point of view, the more families that are playing hockey, the more Blues fans are going to be. I, you know, I've readily admit that that's part of it. I remember hearing that like in the late 80s when Brett Hall got here. This is going to have an impact on generations to come. And now you see every NHL draft, it's like, this guy's from St. Louis, this guy's from St. Louis. So much of that, you know, Kelly Chase is a regular guest on the show. Kachuk was in here a couple weeks ago. Uh, obviously, his son's doing quite well. Is because you have the alumni not only play, of course, here, but then stick around St. Louis and then coach and then develop the game. I mean, it's phenomenal what has happened. What do you think when you see this? It, it really is. I mean, that, that draft two summers ago when there were five kids from St. Louis in, in the first round, I think, you know, before 16 or 17 plus one other. I mean, people who have been around the league for a long time can't remember that happening to Minneapolis or Boston, or maybe not even Toronto. I mean, it, it, it was really unusual. And it does speak to the contributions that the alumni guys have made here. There are a number of them very committed to youth coaching and have put in a tremendous amount of time. And you see that, I mean, they are serious about this. You'll see them before or after a skate or other. They're talking about this kid and they, how he's coming along and what their practice is going to be and how they're... I mean, they they put a lot of time and mm-hmm. effort into it. And, you know, I think they feel like the game gave them a lot and they want to make sure that other kids have that. I always think, you know, can you imagine that? You know, when I was a kid, you know, who's your coach? Oh. I don't know, Bobby's dad. You know, he, he can barely skate. And he, these guys go out, it's Al McInnes yeah. or it's Walt or, I mean, you know, to have that kind of coaching is just really something. And the thing that I, I, I think Chase has said it, and then I asked Kachuk about it when he was in here, he said one of, the, one of the things that I think has led to the success of it is we hear so much about, quote-unquote, Little League parents who then go and complain to the coach because it is Bobby's dad, mm-hmm. as opposed to a Hall of Famer, for example. And so the parents just go, well, I'm not going to go up the wall. Yeah, what are you going to do? <laughs> Tell Al he doesn't know what he's doing? <laughs> <laughs> so there's nothing fans want to hear more about than the opinion of you on this year's 
team and what is realistic, and especially considering how many injuries the team had in September and October to come out of the gate uh, like they did, that was something else. It, it really was. It was impressive. To I mean, we lose uh, Sanford 20 minutes into his first practice. I mean, we lost Berglund before anything started, and Steen, Bomeister, Fabry. I mean, yeah. it, it was a tough start, and I, I would have thought that would have been reflected in the early play, and it, it actually went exactly the, the opposite. Uh, so that that was really impressive and a real credit to the players mm-hmm. and, and the coaches. Um, you know, since then we've had a bit of a swoon here. Um, obviously, we're missing um, a very important player, but nobody's used that as, as an excuse. Mm-hmm. You know, you're, you're going to have that. It's part of the league. Nobody's going to feel sorry for us and say, well, you know, we'll take it easy. Um, but it does seem like right now that they're, they're recharged. I mean, we played. Yeah, we played so many more games than anybody that else. That was did, I've never seen. Including that. what was it, five or six back to backs in one month? And you know, it. You know, again, it's an excuses. So you got to play your schedule, but right. that that was that was a tired team. So I, you know, and I don't know as much as it's easy to well, we want to be perfect and great every team. We're going to have some ups and downs, and you know, and now we, we we've had a bit of a down period. Um, I, I really like the consistent intensity that we saw in the Toronto and Ottawa game, mm-hmm. you know, from beginning to end, and um, you know, I, I think I think we're going to see more of that. You know, we'll get we'll get Schwartz back soon. We'll get Sanf- Sanford back after a while, and um, so. I'm, I'm I'm optimistic. Yeah, I, the, when I was talking to Bill DeWitt III, one of the things he said, because he knows there's some fran, fan frustration, uh, which is a unique spot for them because of how successful they've been. And he says what we aim for is sustained competitiveness, and they really have delivered that since 2000, including some championships, but even in years where they're not in the postseason, they're in the mix. They're amazing. I mean, it, it's just, I mean, they have a little down period for a few weeks and everybody's all over them but because God, suddenly are they fools i mean they put up i mean they've proven themselves to be just a tremendous franchise but ever since you've owned the team the team's been in the postseason but there isn't that stanley cup championship so i think i could be wrong i mean here i am again handicapping things i know nothing about but because the cardinals have the track record have the championships perhaps they would operate perhaps i'm not saying they do they wouldn't make the all-in move if it were on the table. Um, Blue's situation, I would think, is is potentially different if that were on the table at a trade deadline, whether it be this year or a different year. Do you? How do you view that when that comes to your desk? You know, as uh, this issue uh, came up a bit around the time that we announced uh, Doug Armstrong's extension, and we were talking about, I think we have very similar views or, or, or visions on that where I think Bill's term of, of sustained competitiveness or sustained contender is, is something that, you know, we are after as well. Um, and, you know, a big part of that is the view that 
especially in the NHL. I, I mean, I don't, I don't know enough about the other sports, but it, it sure seems, especially in the NHL, to win a championship in one given year, everything really has to go well. I mean, obviously you have to have a great and competitive team, but then you have to avoid injuries. Your goal has to be playing well at the right time. The matchups have to work, you know? And, and so if you, you know, pinpoint that's our year and you go all in and then yeah. those things go, you've blown it. So, I mean, our philosophy is that we want to be in a position to contend you know, and not just, you know, be a winning team, but be a strong contending team, you know, able to rise up and win that championship over a longer, you know, a sustained period. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, again, you're just, you're kind of dealing to an inside straight. That's the year. And if you don't do it, then, you know, you gave up all these assets. So, you know, and, but, you know, there's a balance of protecting, you know, so you want to protect your assets, meaning prospects Mm -hmm. to do that. Now, you know, there's a balance there, you know, the current versus future. And, and, and so you're, you're going to make assessments and you're going to make some moves, but I'm not going to mortgage the future entirely. So it, it, it's a, it's a, it's a blend. It's a, it's a gray area, but I, I think overall that philosophy is the same. We want to be strong and competitive over a long period and put ourselves in a position so that when we have that great year and things are going well, you know, we, we have, you know, we have a shot at it. So much what we hear about in the postseason is effort and buy-in. Um, and I think the thing that makes fans so enthused about the Blues, the way they go about it, the way you go about it, is they can buy in. And in 2016, as we were discussing a little earlier, not only did you have fans thrilled, owners thrilled, but I remember Chase talking about all of the guys from past teams coming back. Guys who aren't St. Louis residents, plenty of St. Louis residents, but so many guys coming in from Canada, coming in from all over the United States because they wanted to see it happen. Mm-hmm. So this isn't just, this isn't, of course, not that you're representing, this isn't about the ownership group, it isn't about even the current guys, it isn't about the coaches, the staff, it isn't just about, the, it's about this whole group of people that want to see this happen. Yeah, and that, that, that starts with Blues alumni here and, you know, across North America and even into Europe, and, and it certainly extends to fans here. I mean, you know how many fans here have you know, been coming to the game since 67, and they just, I don't know how many have said, I just, just want to see that cup before I die. So mm-hmm. there, there's, there'll be a, there's a lot of positive energy behind us. Yeah. So, you know, we, and, and that energy does um, transmit yeah. to the team on the ice. Yeah. You, you know, I, think, I think they feel that. Yeah. I mean, in, in, the, in the playoffs, it, it's interesting. I, I don't, I don't think you ever have a shortage of effort or buy-in. It's more, it's, it's kind of the will, yeah. you know. Two months. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, at a given moment in a, in a game or in a series, and, you know, it's who's going to prevail. Yeah. I, I, get, I get the sense you don't necessarily feel like the pressure of that. You feel like it's the honor of being, you know, essentially at the at the front of the ship, trying to to lead it to the destination. 
It's both. <laughs> <laughs> you know, when you, when you talk to somebody like I was describing, I just, you know, I used to go with my dad, and it just means the world to me. And, and, and you, you know, first yesterday, that's so nice. People are so nice. And then you think, oh, boy, <laughs> you got a responsibility here. <laughs> you gotta get. So it, 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 it's both. Yeah. Well, I have enjoyed this a great deal. Thank you so much for coming in and and talking it over. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So there it is. Tom Stillman here on the Tim McKernan Show on the Inside STL Podcast Network from the HomeLoanExpert.com studios. So two things that really stood out to me, and as always, I welcome you to email with your thoughts, tmckernan at InsideSTL.com. Please, if you could, leave a review uh, and ideally it's a positive review on iTunes. It helps the podcast. I still don't know why. I just know I've been told to say it, so I do it. But two things stood out to me from the interview. Um, first off, he didn't want to rip Stan Kroenke. He went out of it. It was really the only thing he didn't touch throughout the course of the interview. Um, but by talking about what he believes an owner of a professional sports franchise should be, uh, you can deduce what he thinks of the way Uh, the St. Louis slash Los Angeles Rams have been operated. But if, if I'm a passionate fan of a team, I want to see the owner acting like Tom Stillman does. Not like he's acting like a wild man or anything like that, but he's watching the games intently like you are as a fan and he's fired up. When you see Troy Brower score in game seven against the Blackhawks a couple of years ago, you're jumping up and down too. Well, there's your owner doing the same thing. Can you picture Stan Kroenke doing that? Can you picture a lot of owners doing that? It's not just limited to Kroenke. And, and, and Tom Stillman says, I mean, I would think that that's what you would want in your owner. But also, not just being a fan, the fact that he just thinks it's logical to be out front when people are coming in for the home opener and welcoming them to the building. Welcome to the building. That's, that's just what he thinks is, is logical to stand out there, welcome the fans, say thank you, and he does it. And while, you know, maybe that doesn't really impact the bottom line, it gives the community a belief that these folks are good citizens. And that's important. That's important because then people can buy in. They can buy in from a season ticket standpoint. They can buy in from a sponsorship standpoint. They can buy in. There's a lot to be said for that. There's a lot to be said for thinking that way. And how much time in the whole scheme of things does it take? So there's that element of it. And then this, when I went with the line of questioning, asking him about the state of the city of St. Louis, I had three questions prepared that would be subcategories to that question, uh, whether it be about the comptroller, uh, whether it be about Kara Spencer, uh, the renovations, Maryland Heights, all of these things. Well, he got so fired up, I didn't even need to ask the questions. And yes, there's no question that the Blues, I would imagine, can say, yeah, we handled some things that we could have done with the benefit of hindsight differently, better. Um, and certainly, some of his comments are in his business's own self-interest. I don't think that there is anything wrong or rare about that. But as you also heard him say, this isn't just about the St. Louis Blues. I mean, how many of you are listening who own professional sports franchises? I can speak for myself. I don't own one. Have a nice little fantasy football team. Didn't make the playoffs this year. But nonetheless, I don't own a professional sports franchise. And don't many of us agree 
that we want to see St. Louis stop trending down and start trending up. And so from that standpoint, to hear Tom Stillman be as passionate as he was, uh, to me, that's refreshing. I enjoyed that. And I, th- I would think, even if you disagree, and I'm sure some people listen and, and would disagree. Uh, I don't think that'll be the majority, but I'm sure there'll be some. Even if you disagree, I think you can appreciate the passion with which he stated his case and the reasons behind the case. So, for example, when, when Alderwoman Megan Green was in, somebody who certainly would be on the other side of Tom Stillman on a variety of these topics inside of City Hall and the Board of Aldermen, uh, I, I, a lot of people emailed, it's, that's been one of the more listened to podcasts we've done, and said, man, I really disagree with her, but I understand now where she's coming from, and I appreciate the way she laid out her case. And really, that's, and I'm not trying to heal the world with this podcast, but allowing people to talk, you know, whether it be for an hour, 90 minutes, 40 minutes, whatever the case might be, point is, not 15, 30-second sound bites or, or Twitter, allows you to hear the context. And you got to hear Tom Stillman talk about something that I don't think he was planning on getting that into, but he certainly did. And I appreciated that. And also, finally, just to hear about his love for the game. Yes, this is a business, no question. But for fans, it's an escape. It's a passion. And the thing is about the gentleman who owns the business, clearly it's a passion for him as well. And I think that resonates with the fan base. I hope you enjoyed the interview. Your feedback is always welcomed. T. McKernan at InsideSTL.com. We have a lot of great interviews coming up. And if you haven't listened to our interviews, subscribe to the podcast. They're all there for you, whether it be on iTunes, InsideSTL.com, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever you may podcast. A lot of them are evergreen, and they're good, long conversations with uh, newsmakers, uh, politicians, entertainers, uh, media folks uh, throughout the St. Louis area, throughout Missouri. Uh, And we welcome you to take a listen Uh, anytime you would like. It's always all there for you. That's the magic of podcasting. We thank our sponsors, the HomeLoanExpert.com studios, Ryan Kelly and his great staff at the HomeLoanExpert.com, James Carlton, State Farm Insurance Agency, Triad Bank, and Gateway Buick GMC at I-270 and McDonald Boulevard online at stlouisbuickgmc.com. Without our sponsors, this does not exist. Without you listening, this does not exist. And without the great producer, John Seymour, we don't get these caliber of guests on this show and on the Cat Chat, which also airs on the Inside STL Podcast Network. For my executive producer, John Seymour, I'm Tim McKernan. Thank you for listening to another edition of the Tim McKernan Show on the Inside STL Podcast Network, live on podcasts from the HomeLoanExpert.com studios. This is Mike Francesa. Join me each week on the Mike Francesa podcast on the Bet Rivers Network. This is real sports talk for the podcast generation. Subscribe to the free Mike Francesa podcast today from wherever you get your podcasts. Don't even think about betting this football season until you check out the Sports Betters Paradise podcast on the Bet Rivers Network. The top college and pro football handicappers help you along all season long. Subscribe to Sports Betters Paradise wherever you get your podcasts.